What weird dream have I just entered? I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today I'm discussing the first half of November's book The Castle by Franz Kafka published in 1926. So each month I take a book, split it into two and discuss it on the second and last Fridays. I'd love to know your thoughts on the book so far. Leave a comment below or if you're listening to the episode send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So I've read up to chapter 14 of the castle. There may be some spoilers up to 50%. Um, I've tried to alert of any, but if you hate spoilers, my advice would be to read the book before listening. So Kay, possibly Kafka, arrives at night at the foot of a castle. It has a very Dracula vibe. It reminds me of Harker when he arrived for the first time at Castle Dracula, brooding and suspicious. But he can't see the castle. He doesn't realise he's so close to it. It's full of suspense. He's rudely woken by a young man to be told he needs a permit to be in the village, which is effectively the castle. Quote, This village belongs to the castle. Anyone living or spending the night here is, in a sense, living or spending the night in the castle. No one may do that without a permit from the Count. He says that he's a land surveyor for the Count. The young man makes inquiries that Kay's story is truthful. Has a very bureaucratic feel so far. There's many hierarchies and red tape to affirm that he is who he says is. And this just from the local population. He's not trespassing. I can tell Kafka was a legal worker. We're only on page three and already the list of characters is big. We've got the young man, Schwarzer, we've got a landlord, a landlady, the son of a castle governor, castle governor, Count West West, the owner of the castle, peasants, Kay's assistants, steward, under steward, Fritz, office manager, loads of people. Anyway, it transpires that after initially accusing him of lying, it was a mix-up and he is indeed confirmed as the land surveyor and allowed to sleep for the remainder of the night. Thank goodness for that. In the morning, the landlord tells Kay that he is not powerful in comparison to the governor and under-governor. There's certainly power politics at play in this dynamic. Very much an air of Gormenghast, if you've ever read that, with dogma and pecking order dominating the text. He does a recce of the castle and considers it more like a small town. He passes a school and meets a group of children and a school teacher, and when he says he would like some company, the school teacher gives him his address. He walks into a bathhouse where people are bathing. He falls asleep, and when he wakes, he is told, quote, you can't stay here. He is escorted off the premises. It's very strange. I feel like I've stepped into someone's dream. Now, a man, Gerstacker, pokes his head out of a cottage window and knows he's the land surveyor. He offers to drive him to the inn. And at the inn, he meets his two assistants who seem incompetent and don't have any of the equipment Kay entrusted them with. The assistants act as one person. They are indistinguishable to Kay. When they telephone the governor for permission to go to the castle in the morning, he says no. A messenger appears called Barnabas, who gives Kay a letter. Now the assistants are in a strange embrace as if to emphasise their similarity or interchangeability. Quote, he indicated the assistants who were clasped in an embrace, leaning together, cheek to cheek, and smiling, whether humbly or derisively, there was no telling. The message is from the chief clerk, Clam, saying that he has been accepted as a worker for the Count. Quote, Dear Sir, as you know, you have been admitted to the Count's service. Your immediate superior is the mayor of the village, who will also give you all the details of your job and the terms of payment, and to whom you will also be accountable. Nevertheless, I shall also be keeping an eye on you myself. Barnabas, the bearer of this letter, will make inquiries of you from time to time in order to discover your wishes and communicate them to me. 
You will find me ever ready to oblige you so far as possible. I like to have contented workers. The term Count makes me immediately see visions of Count Dracula. I'm not sure it's going to turn out to be that kind of a story. The village reminds Kay of his hometown. He recollects being a child at school. Now, there are so many intermediaries in this book so far. I think that's the point. What exactly is my role here? What precisely is the politics? What is going on? I feel like I'm in a very bureaucratic new office job and I don't know where to go or what to do. A bit like Kay. All around Kay are these references to peasants. So class is obviously very important to Kay. Now Barnabas, the messenger, takes him on a journey, but not to the castle, to his family home where he meets Barnabas's parents and his two sisters, Olga and Amalia. Kay is a bit disappointed that he wasn't taken to see the mayor and chief clerk. He has visions of him being escorted to the castle by Barnabas, a vision that is dashed by the very ordinary house he has come to. In a reference to this feeling, and as if to show the shiny veneer of bureaucratic power falling away, Kay feels he has been, quote, charmed by Barnabas's tight-fitting shiny silk jacket, which the latter now unbuttoned to reveal a coarse, dirty grey, heavily mended shirt covering the powerful square chest of a farmhand. It reminds me of a photo I recently saw of the behind-the-scenes guards at Westminster Hall relaxing in plain t-shirts. Around them are their plush uniforms. Now, Kay learns that Olga, the sister, is going to a different inn called the Count's Arms, and he asks if he can accompany her, quote, thinking there might be a chance to bed there. He asked the landlord there if he can stay, but we have the response, quote, that's not possible, I'm afraid, said the landlord. You seem to be unaware that this place is for the exclusive use of the gentleman from the castle. That may be what the rules say, Kay countered, but surely it must be possible for you to let me sleep in a corner somewhere. I should be delighted to oblige you, said the landlord, but even apart from the stringency of the rules, which you speak of as a stranger would, it is also not feasible because the gentlemen are extremely sensitive. I'm convinced they could never, at least not without warning, stand the sight of a stranger. So if I do let you spend the night here, and by some accident, and accidents are always in the gentleman's favour, you were discovered, not only should I be lost, but so would you. It sounds absurd, but it's true. Now that gives a sense of the flavour of this bizarre, nightmarish narrative. Now he finds out Clam, the chief clerk, is staying there too, and Olga insists Kay should stay at the inn. He chats with the barmaid, Frida, who tells him that she is Clam's mistress, and she lets him spy on him through a hole in the wall in a very bizarre scene. She agrees to be Kay's mistress, but she must leave with Olga and wait for all the people in the inn to leave first. She tells him they are Clam's people, and gets out a whip to march them out. Now the landlord inquires where the land surveyor is and Frida helps him to hide. And then Frida declares her love for Kay and quote, three hours passed, hours of breathing as one, hearts beating as one, hours in which Kay constantly had the feeling that he had lost his way or wandered farther into a strange land than anyone before him. So that's how I feel reading this novel. In the morning, the assistants are sitting on the bar top, having been there all night, and Olga enters. Ultimately, they return to the original inn, the Bridge Inn, where he stays in bed with Frida and his assistants crowded into the room. Now, when Kay tells the landlady he wishes to marry Frida and let Clam know, remember Frida is Clam's mistress, she says it's out of the question that he is high-ranking. Quote, Mr. Clam is a gentleman from the castle, that in itself, quite apart from his position otherwise, signifies a very high rank. But what you are, whose marriage permit we're so humbly applying for here, 
You're not from the castle. You're not from the village. You're nothing. Again, we have class describing the pecking order and correct protocol. K is at the bottom. She goes on to say he is but a stranger, a constant source of trouble. Quote, a source of trouble on whose account the maids have to be moved out, someone whose intentions are unknown, someone who has seduced our dear little Frida and to whom she must unfortunately be given in marriage. So Frida is just the pawn, passed from one man to another, like property. The landlady wishes he had stayed with Barnabas and not met Frida by staying at the Count's arm. Now Kate visits the mayor and reflects that life and officialdom had interwoven. Quote, what was the meaning, for example, of the hitherto purely formal power that Clam wielded over Kay's work compared to the very real power Clam possessed in Kay's bedroom? The mayor is weak and in bed and tells him that there is no need for a land surveyor. He tries to find the order requesting his services, but no one can find it. And he explains in a long-winded description how the reply to the order stating that a land surveyor was not needed became lost. Quote, we replied to the order, I mentioned by saying thank you, but we did not need a land surveyor. However, our reply appears not to have found its way back to the original department. I'll call it A, but to another department, B, by mistake. So department A got no reply, but unfortunately, nor did B receive our full reply. Whether the contents of the file never left here, or whether they got lost on the way, certainly not in the department itself, I'll vouch for that. Anyway, all that arrived at Department B was a folder on which was marked simply that the accompanying but in reality unfortunately missing file concerned the appointment of a land surveyor. Meanwhile, Department A was awaiting our reply. They did have some notes on the matter, but as happens with understandable frequency and quite admissibly given the precision with which everything is dealt with, the head of department relied on our replying and his then either appointing the land surveyor or, if necessary, corresponding with us further on the subject. Consequently, he ignored the notes and the whole thing was forgotten so far as he was concerned. In department B, however, the folder reached an official who is renowned for his conscientiousness, Sordini by name, in Italian. Even to an initiate like myself, it is incomprehensible why a man of his abilities is left in almost the most subordinate position of all. Sordini, of course, sent the empty folder back to us for completion. However, many months, if not years, had passed by now since that initial letter from Department A. Understandably so, because when, as usual happens, a file follows the correct channel, it reaches its department in a day at most and is dealt with that same day. But if it happens to go the wrong way, and such is the excellence of the organisation, it is literally to seek out the wrong way with some zeal, otherwise it will not find it. Then in that case, admittedly, it does take a very long time so when we received Sordini's memorandum, we could only very vaguely recall the affair. There were only two of us doing the work then. Mitzi and myself, the schoolmaster, had yet to be assigned to me. We kept copies only in the most important matters. In short, we were able to reply only very vaguely that we knew nothing about such an appointment and that there was no call for a land surveyor here. That gives a sense of the confusion, bureaucracy and madcap nature that pervades the novel so far. Now, Kay asks if there are control authorities to prevent mistakes occurring. And the mayor states, quote, I'm convinced that an error occurred and Sordini, the administrator, became extremely ill as a result of his despair at that fact and the first control bureau, which we have to thank for discovering the source of the error. Also acknowledge the error here. 
Who is to say that the second control bureau will form the same judgment and then the third and subsequently the others? Kay feels, quote, an appalling abuse is being perpetrated against me. And he is going to, quote, combat this. But I'm thinking, how? Now, they try to find the original order, but they fail. Kay shows the mayor the letter from Clam, but he dismisses Kay's interpretation of the letter. And in the very next chapter, Kay misinterprets the photograph that the landlady offers him. She also has a shawl and a cap of clams, which she keeps as mementos. She explains how she was with him for 20 years before Frida took her place as his mistress. Kay is upset the clam seems to cause such devotion in his mistresses. The fact that he is betrothed to Frida gives him, quote, cause for serious concern. Now, Kay goes to ask the landlady a, quote, rude question and misinterprets her silence as a reason to be quiet. More on that later. The landlady explains how her marriage with Hans, her husband, occurred. She describes how she was dropped by Clam as his mistress, and Kay explains how he will confront Clam to discuss the Frieda situation, no doubt. Now the schoolmaster sees Kay and tells him that he was rude to the mayor, of which Kay disagrees, and that the mayor has offered him the post of school caretaker. He refuses the job, much to the teacher's delight, but Kay gets thrown out of the inn by the landlady, quote, furious at having lowered herself to Kay over confessions about Clam. So Frieda forces him to accept the job. They settle into the school and he learns he won't be paid. Kay goes off to confront Clam and he leaves the bridge inn for the Count's Inn. Now the bridge inn is like a bridge to this other strange world of the novel. He meets Peppy at the inn who has now replaced Frieda. She's even younger than Frieda and he covers his eyes so as to quote, stop lustfully eyeing her. He waits for Clam to show but he doesn't. Maybe he's dead. He was just sitting there and there's no reference to any of his movements or speech as Kay watched him through that keyhole. Certainly it feels like we, the reader, nor Kay, we meet him. He goes back into the Count Inn and sees the landlady from the Bridge Inn and Peppy alongside another gentleman called Momus who says he is Clam's, quote, village secretary, alongside another character called Valabeen. He says that Clam has left the building. What a surprise. Kay is questioned by Momus and the landlady, but Kay makes it clear he'd like to see Clam, but he is denied access. Now in the street, Kay meets Barnabas the messenger again, alongside his two assistants. He's given a note from Clam saying he's doing a fine job and will be recompensed soon. Kay is confused by the letter and asks Barnabas to deliver a message to Clam saying he would like a meeting in person the next day, and Barnabas agrees to this. Back at the school, where Kay lives in a classroom with his assistants and Frida, he and Frida discuss how they can possibly get rid of the assistants. In the morning, school children appear, quote, crowding curiously around the beds. The schoolmistress, Giza, complains of their presence and notices her cat has been injured. It is noticed that Wood was taken without permission from the woodshed and ultimately Kay is accused of the crime by the schoolmaster, who then tries to dismiss him. Kay argues that only the mayor can dismiss him because it was the mayor that gave him the job of caretaker. Now Kay sacks the assistants and he throws them outside. They desperately want to come back in. Kay says, quote, I came here in order to stay here. I shall stay here. And with an inconsistency he did not even attempt to explain, he added, as if to himself, because what could possibly have lured me into this desolate country but the desire to stay here? Now this is a very surreal comment, very dreamlike. Kay is admitting to himself that he has almost created this crazy world of the castle for himself, like a self-generated dream world. 
Frida says how the assistants have been pursuing her, but Kate isn't sure he believes her. He accuses her of, quote, over-familiarity. In response, Frida goes into a poetic monologue about how she is desperate to be alone with Kay. Quote, I know of no greater bliss for myself than to be with you forever, without interruption, without end. When I dream, I really do, that there's no quiet place here on earth for our love, not in the village and not anywhere else. So I picture a grave, deep and narrow, in which we embrace as if clamped together. I bury my face against you, you, yours against mine, and no one will ever see us again. She goes on to say that they could be Clam's envoys and that Kay, by being hard on them, could be, quote, refusing Clam himself access to you. I want to do my utmost to shield you from the consequences. Then I do want you to let them in. Sounds to me like she's in love with these assistants and is actually trying to protect them, but who knows? Now Hans, a schoolboy, knocks on Kay's door, saying that he wants to stand by Kay. He's upset that Kay was told off by the schoolmistress, and Kay agrees to help Hans, his sick mother. And there ends the first half of the novel. So, first impressions. It's very strange. It's like entering a weird dream world, as I said. Characters who rarely talk, like the assistants, we've got the clam figure, this constant menacing, unobtainable presence. Can't say I'm enjoying it that much. It's certainly a very interesting experience. I feel like I've just woken up from some terrible nightmarish dream. I'm clutching at sort of half-remembered fragments. Some interesting questions to come out of the book. So what actions will Kay take? Kay feels, quote, an appalling abuse is being perpetrated against me. And he's going to, quote, combat this, but how? Why doesn't he just leave? Well, he does state to the mayor, quote, I shall tell you something of what is keeping me here, the sacrifice I made to get away from home, the long hard journey, the legitimate hopes I had as a result of being taken on here, my total lack of assets, the impossibility of my now finding another suitable job back home, and last but not least, my intended, who was a local girl. And then later Kay says, quote, I came here in order to stay here, I shall stay here and with an inconsistency he did not even attempt to explain, he added, as if to himself, because what could possibly have lured me into this desolate country but the desire to stay here? We've already seen a reference to Kay's mistrust of Frida when he accuses her of, quote, over-familiarity with his assistance. Will she remain faithful to him? And will Clam make any kind of appearance? So there were loads of interesting ideas the futility of Kay's work as a land surveyor. So far, he's really been unable to survey any land at all, although he does try. He's kind of walked from one end to another and then back again. It seems to be a comment on the futility of striving to do work of any kind or one's work as defined by your job role. Then we've got the interesting assistants. I've already mentioned them. They almost remind me of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern from Hamlet or perhaps the two characters from Beckett's Waiting for Godot, Vladimir and Estragon. In Waiting for Godot, remember the two main characters seem to exist for the sole purpose of waiting to meet this mysterious character Godot. However, Godot never really shows up, so their existence begins to seem absurd, just like the assistants in this novel. They're trying to fulfill a purpose that can never be fulfilled. And here, Kay seems to be waiting to fulfill his purpose of surveying the castle, which so far has never happened. And I don't think it will. And I don't think he's going to find Clam. Now, the assistants in this narrative are completely voiceless, blindly following Kay around. 
even squeezing into sleeping quarters. They don't speak, but are incredibly loyal and enthusiastic. At least I did think that until my suspicions were roused by Frida and whether she possibly had a romantic relationship with one of them. Snow permeates the novel so far. It's a constant present in the work. Cold, oppressive and slowing all movement it reflects the slow moving progress of the central protagonist, unable to tread speedily through this physical but mental world of the castle. The translation of the check for castle is also lock. This snow helps to lock in Kay. Later in the first half, the landlady does say, quote, your swift conquest of Frida startled me. I didn't know what else you might be capable of. I was keen to avoid further damage and thought the only way I could achieve that was by trying to unsettle you with pleas and threats. I've since learned to think more calmly about the whole thing. You can do what you like. Your actions may leave deep footprints in the snow out in the yard, but that's all. And soon these footprints will melt or disappear, leaving Kay with no voice at all, perhaps. Another interesting idea is, I think, the fallibility of human interpretation. Kay misinterprets things so many times. He misinterprets Clam's letter of employment, according to the mayor. He misreads the landlady's photograph. He misinterprets the landlady's silence. And she even says, quote, you misinterpret everything, even silence. And Kay counters with, if I misinterpret everything, maybe I'm also misinterpreting my question. And he goes on to ask the seemingly innocent question of how she came to have the inn in her possession. Is there an influence of Freud there, the interpretation of dreams, the interpretation and fallibility of the conscious experience? Everything we experience is first processed by the brain and is therefore fallible. I've already mentioned the fact that it's like a dream world. The snow gives it this colourless, almost black and white feel. And then we've got those silent assistants that don't speak. And as I said, the bridge is like a bridge, this other strange world of the novel. It's very interesting, the role of females in the novel. There's a lot of them that seem to be in some kind of bondage. First Frida to Clam, and now Peppy to Clam. It's a very patriarchal society. The females seem to only operate in relation to the males. And look at Frida obediently providing for her husband to be as he journeys to confront Clam. Quote, Leaning against the wall, he took out his food, thought gratefully of Frida, who had provided for him so well. She does provide for him so well, at least towards the end of the middle half, I'm thinking she has, but maybe she's been unfaithful to him. Now on a separate note, the narrator does at one point think, quote, then Hans thought for a moment, staring fixedly, very like a woman who has a wish to do something forbidden and is looking for a way of carrying it out unpunished. That's quite old-fashioned and sexist thinking by the narrator. Discuss. Now, I've already mentioned titles. We'd only got to page three and there were loads of titles. Each character has one though. They've got Kays, the land surveyor, Clams, the chief clerk, Barnabas, the messenger. We've got Frida, the mistress. And then we've got these other titles. You've got the landlady, the landlord, the mayor, the schoolmaster, the schoolmistress, the assistants. We've got the peasants. We've got the understeward, the steward. It all goes to create this very bureaucratic tone to the novel. Every character must also have a specific function, although these functions, ironically, seem to be in very much name only. Kay does very little land surveying. Clam doesn't seem to be a very active chief clerk. I haven't seen the school teacher do any actual teaching. So some interesting ideas. I'd love to know your thoughts. 
I'd now like to share some of your thoughts on last month's book, Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Rees. There were some wonderful comments on the web and on Goodreads. In particular, I found a very interesting article in The Guardian by Claire Armistad. She says, quote, published in 1966, this isn't simply a prequel, but a deeply political novel in its own right, in which names echo with a traumatic history that can be barely remembered, let alone mentioned. A town called Massacre, a boy called Disastrous, and Antoinette herself, who is cruelly stripped of her illusions by a husband who insists on calling her Bertha. Claire goes on to describe how Christophine operates in the novel. Quote, she is the nearest the novel gets to a presiding spirit. She too is an outsider who was brought to Jamaica as a wedding present for Antoinette's mother in the years before emancipation. She practices obeya, voodoo, and her motives and loyalties are always mysterious. By concocting a love potion to be administered to Edward, she effectively sets up one of the novel's most devastating scenes in which he reprises the atrocities of colonialism by casually seducing the servant girl who nurses him back to health as his drugged wife sleeps in the next room. She continues, In prose, becoming steadily more queasy and disorientating, we witness a disintegration that is also a disinheritance. The final section is narrated by Bertha from her attic in Thornfield Hall, where she is brutally constrained by Charlotte Bronte's character Grace Poole. In the flicker of a candle on a draughty stairwell, the two novels come together and two very different sorts of gothic merge into one. I love her reference to the love potion that went so disastrously wrong and her categorisation of this being a very different love potion. Now, JD on Goodreads had a very interesting review. It was in the form of a poem. Quote, Antoinette by day, Bertha by twilight, the white cockroach of Calubri, bold and beautiful, mad and fiery as Hades, daughter of slave owner, philanderer, villain, mired in my um and voodoo, and the saints of the dark goddesses of the Isle of Jamaica, to misty England, locked in an attic with alcoholic grace, coming heart to heart with a nemesis, so plain and fair is the little Jane Eyre, damnation, anger, lust, madness, a fire to disfigure her one true love, Rochester. Thank you, JD. And Rowena had a lovely quote from the book, quote, our garden was large and beautiful as that garden in the Bible. The tree of life grew there, but it had gone wild. The paths were overgrown and the smell of dead flowers mixed with the fresh living smell. Underneath the tree ferns, tall as forest trees, the light was green. Orchids flourished out of reach or for some reason not to be touched. One was snaky looking, another like an octopus with long, thin brown tentacles bare of leaves hanging from the twisted roots. She goes on to say, quote, I was curious to read this book as it was considered a sort of prequel to Jane Eyre, so I guess this counts as fan fiction. At least it's very well written fan fiction. The writing style is, of course, different from Jane Eyre. The depictions of the Caribbean are beautiful. It's a relatively short book and it tells the story of Mr. Rochester's first wife, Antoinette Cosway, whom he met in Jamaica. She goes on to say that historically a lot of people were unaware that the environment one lives in can make one crazy. Women in particular who were often reliant on men and didn't have their own freedom were obviously more likely to suffer from nervous breakdowns. I'm pretty sure most readers will change their opinion of Rochester after they read this. I will definitely see him in a less favourable light when I do reread Jane Eyre. And Nan Dakishaw said, quote, every once in a while I stop to think about the neglected characters in various novels who exist only as plot devices. What are their stories? If you saw the novel through their eyes, what would it be like? Therefore, ever since I heard the premise of Jean Rhys's novel, I was eager to read it. Bertha, Mr. Rochester's first wife, must have had a life other than as the, quote, mad woman in the attic. 
I do not know if Charlotte Bronte ever thought about it, but Miss Reese obviously did, and this compellingly readable novel is the product. The language is beautifully evocative. I could see the West Indies, even though I've never been there. I could see, hear and smell the tropical countryside, very much like my homeland, at once breathtakingly beautiful, compellingly seductive and strangely frightening like Antoinette, especially to the eyes of an Englishman whose green meadows and rolling fields hold no secrets. Yes, the countryside is beautiful, but dangerous since you can get lost in it. It may suddenly cloud over and start to rain, and you may find yourself in the burnt-out ruins of a country house populated only by ghosts of dead slaves and murdered slave owners. The characterization is perfect. Reese draws each character, including the minor ones, with a few deft brushstrokes. Rochester, for all his faults, comes across as sympathetic, a victim of his times and society. The evils he does are part of his social makeup, and Antoinette is a masterpiece, inseparable from the landscape she inhabits. As we progress through the novel and she slips more and more into madness, the narrative also matches her mental state. In fact, the third part is downright creepy. However, I'm still played by a niggling doubt. Would this novel be effective for someone totally ignorant of Jane Eyre? Oh well, maybe the question is irrelevant. Thank you so much for letting me share your comments. And thank you very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. Leave a comment below, or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. I'd also love suggestions for future books to read together. Maybe there's been one sitting on your shelf for ages, which you haven't got around to reading, and you just need that push to get started. Talking of next books, after I've discussed the second half of The Castle in two weeks, that's the 25th of November. December's two episodes will be all about Hao Jing Fang's Vagabonds. So get that one at the ready if you can. Also, if you enjoyed this, please give it a thumbs up and subscribe or give it five stars on your episode app. Thanks. Anyway, I look forward to discussing the last half of the castle in two weeks. See you then.